Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Radliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hello, our mustachioed friend, Max Linsky. What do you have for us on the show this week? This is an audio medium, but Max arrived with a surprise mustache, and it's thrown all of my plans for this introduction <laughs> into a tailspin. Who is on the show? It's thrown a lot of people off, and uh, one way that you know a mustache is terrible is when you're on a long Zoom call and nobody mentions it. Which is what happened to me just before this. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. Uh, this week on the show is Amy Chozik. Amy Chozik was a longtime journalist at the New York Times. Before that, she was at the Wall Street Journal. She covered Hillary Clinton at the Times. She left the Times a couple of years ago, went out to Hollywood. She's a writer and showrunner. She's got a show coming out at some point this year on Max. Not HBO Max, but Max. It's called The Girls on the Bus. But recently, she dipped back into journalism, wrote an article for the New York Times, and read you guys the headline. Tell me if you remember this story. Liz Holmes wants you to forget about Elizabeth. <laughs> I know this story well. I understand it was controversial. Uh, I know some of the contours of that uh, controversy. It's a juicy controversy without like any serious consequences, I feel like. I feel like it's it's a fun one. Usually we don't get to talk about controversies on the show because they're a little too heavy. I consider this a lightweight controversy. Well, I'm not going to weigh in on my own weighing scale on the uh, on the size of the controversy, but I will say it's the kind of controversy that, God damn it, we're going to cover here on the Longform <laughs> Podcast. People have thoughts about journalism at length. It's, I'm just saying it's like a controversy in the tone of Max's mustache. No one got hurt. <laughs> I mean, actually, some people did get hurt by the like bad blood testing. But other than that, uh, I'm very excited about uh, about this interview. Uh, well, Amy was really game to come on and talk to me about the story. We spent a lot of time talking about it, got into the controversy, got into what it is like to be in the uh, eye of a controversy like that. And also what it's like to uh, try and get Elizabeth Holmes to say something honest to you. What is, what is her TV show all about? Um, it's about covering a political campaign. 
It hasn't come out yet. It comes out later this year. But we talked a little bit about like uh, making the transition from journalism to uh, screenwriting and show running and stuff too. How do you feel about HBO rebranding as your name, just as an aside? I'm pro. I will say I have some anxiety about whether it's going to work and whether long-term this is good for Max or bad for Max, <laughs> like the name. But uh, I'm buying in the short term. When you Google Max, the first word afterward could be uh, implosion or disaster. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> or, you know, it could be mustache. This could be the start of something big. We are uh, brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Max with Amy Chosen. Hi, Amy Chosick. Hi. Thanks for doing the podcast. Oh my God, thank you for having me. I feel like um, there are so many times we could have done this, but now we are doing it because you, you wrote an article that got a fair amount of attention. I did, I did. You might have seen it. Would you prefer in this conversation <laughs> that we refer to the subject of that article as Elizabeth Holmes or Liz Holmes? Ooh, it depends which version of Liz <laughs> slash Elizabeth we're talking about. There is also Lizzie in there sometimes. Lizzie? Was Lizzie, Lizzie. in the article? I feel like no, I missed Lizzie. Lizzie. Lizzie wasn't. See, you're already getting some extra tea because sometimes Billy calls her Lizzie. Huh. Well, for the uninitiated... For yes. anyone who is somehow unfamiliar with this piece, give me the quick summary of it. I'm, I'm actually kind of interested in what your quick summary would be. <laughs> sure. Well, as you know, Elizabeth Holmes has been in the news and in popular culture nonstop since her blood testing startup Theranos imploded in one of the most spectacular cases of corporate fraud in recent history. But she has never spoken to the press since 2016 when all of these legal issues started erupting around her. And so she'd never done an interview since then. She is looking at 11 years in prison. She's about to go away. And there was an opportunity for her to finally speak and kind of explain both what her life is like right now and to talk about sort of what went down at Theranos. And um, I spent about a week with her in San Diego, a lot of Zooms, a lot of talks, and um, wrote a piece about kind of I think of it as like sort of part voyeuristic, like what is her life like now? And partly kind of getting into the psychology of what it's like to be around her. What is it that she has that was able to convince the world's smartest men to get on board with something that was essentially a lie? Okay. That's a, Sorry. I, that, that, that's, no, that's a long answer. <laughs> no, that's a great answer. Okay. But I feel like I, I now just want to go further back, which is I was struck reading the article that she hadn't talked to the press since 2016. I feel like, you know, I consumed the many podcasts, documentaries, limited run series, yeah. feature articles. I read it all. I watched it all. I listened oh, to it all. And <laughs> I kind of like um, had missed the fact that she hadn't talked that whole time. How did you, Amy Chosick, <laughs> become the person who was going to go hang out with her in San Diego? <laughs> it's a very good question. I mean, it's interesting because I am like you. I was not a tech reporter. I didn't cover the intricacies of Theranos or the downfall or the trial. But I had such kind of ambient Elizabeth Holmes knowledge from like listening to the podcast and watching the dropout and all of these things. And yeah, her legal team advised that she go quiet and I feel like it's the kind of quintessential example of if you don't feed the press, we feed on you because it's been like an all-you-can-eat buffet with Elizabeth Holmes, right? The turtlenecks, the green juices. Uh, but she's never actually spoken. And I think a lot of the 
great work that has come out of the scandal, they didn't necessarily get to know her as a person. So it's very random, honestly, the way it came about. I live in Los Angeles now. I have not written for The Times in a few years because I've been a full-time showrunner, screenwriter, showrunner um, in Hollywood. And I had heard through the grapevine that she was living in San Diego, that she was going to prison. And I don't know, but I'm assuming before you go to prison for 11 years, there's a lot of things you want to like do that you haven't done or might not be able to do. I'm assuming. And I you heard might have that a pretty she... significant to do list before. You might have a bit of a bucket list, you know, before sure. you see 11 years of your life uh, behind bars. So I'd heard that she was living in San Diego. I had heard that she was interested in possibly talking before she goes to prison. And I was was like way too busy to do journalism because I had this big job. But I Zoomed with her like from set when I was working on this HBO Max show. And I and when I got to know she and Billy, I kind of got to know what they wanted. And then I talked a lot to my editors at the Times about kind of how would we approach it? How would we make sure that it's newsworthy? And also that we're kind of honest with readers about, by the way, we know not to trust this person. So there was a lot of negotiating kind of how we do it. And then it was just sort of like, okay, come spend all this time. And and, the, and people have asked me, like, were there ground rules? And there was really nothing. I mean, they wanted me to be a little bit careful about where they live because they do get death threats and all kinds of paparazzi and things. But other than that, we spent about five days together in San Diego. Um, as I mentioned in the piece, they kind of invited me back. They wanted to spend more time together. Um, they were very open about what we could talk about and the time that we spent together. I'm so curious about this. We got we got to go back. We got we to go back to the beginning of that answer. So can you give me a little bit more on what hearing through the grapevine that Elizabeth Holmes wants to talk? What does that mean? Like, is that like a flack? Is that a PR agent who's coming to you and being like, you could get the Elizabeth Holmes story? Or is it literally like you're at some like cocktail party in the Hollywood Hills and someone's <laughs> like, I think I hear Liz Holmes is ready to go. It's a little more the latter. Like, there's been all these rumors online that, like, if you, this PR firm planted this and should get a raise. And I'm like, why would the PR firm, like, call the journalist who hasn't had a byline in three years? Like, I'm not even really doing that as my day job anymore. So that was sort of funny to me. It was much more, I would say, a mutual friend slash acquaintance who had heard that she was going to be doing, wanting to talk. And I kind of, I did send a few of my stories, you know, I'd, I'd covered a lot of women um, who have been in the center of media shitstorms. I did a big story kind of about Lorena Bobbitt, remember yep. the Lorena yep. Bobbitt scandal? And then it turned out that she had, uh, her husband had been raping her. She had called the police, but marital rape was not a crime in Virginia. Like there were a lot of circumstances around the cutting off the penis that we did not know at the time, right? So I felt like Partly that story had an impact on Liz because she really wanted to talk about the sexual assault aspect of her story, which was part of her defense. So I don't want to I want to present it in the context of this was part of her defense. But she also felt like a lot of what had been written and portrayed about Theranos sort of missed the fact that she was raped at Stanford and the abuse that she alleged against uh, Sonny Balwani. So I don't know why they chose me, but she did read. I know she read my stories and I know that what she was interested in talking about has been something that I've talked to prominent women about in the past. In those conversations, I want to get to the negotiations with your editors, too. But yeah. in those conversations with her, is there an aspect of it like you are selling yourself like 
you're not actively working as a journalist right now. You've been working in Hollywood for a couple of right, years. Right. There's got to be some part of you that's like, this is a good story. Yeah, a thousand percent. Like, I mean, once a journalist, always a journalist, I guess. And like initially when I heard it through the grapevine, this person was like, do you know anyone who'd be good? I know you're busy. Do you know anyone who would want to do this? And I was like, I'm not too busy for this one. You know, of, cor <laughs> of course, like, of course, she's a fascinating, fascinating figure. And it's exactly the type of story that I love, which is providing context or additional, you know, additional color to a narrative we all kind of think we know. Right. So it was a thousand percent. I was like, ooh, I'm not too busy for that one. I could make time. And I wanted to do it, yes. Um, but initially, I heard it through the grapevine of, like, this person was looking for other, like, they were looking for a journal. It wasn't, like, pitched to me to do it. But I was like, I saw a good story, and I grabbed it. <laughs> Part of not just the subtext of the article, but the text of the article is that she is trying to sell you on a narrative, and you're wrestling with whether or not the sales job is effective. And it's interesting to me to hear that you were Zooming with her and kind of saying like, here, part of, it's like a, the sales started before the reporting did in, in a way. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, I, I, I just think we were just kind of, I was explaining what I would need. She was explaining why she's deciding to talk and what she'd want to talk about and kind of, and I think it was a good place for me to approach the story, right? Because I didn't need to write it. I think if I had been on staff, like doing journalism all the time, I'd been like, I gotta get this. This is the biggest scoop ever. But like, I was like, eh, if it works out, it'd be awesome. But like, I'm really busy. So like, you know, so I right, was, right, right. I was not going to accept any kind of limitations to what I could ask or any kind of bullshit because I'm like, I don't need to do this. It's a great story. If I can do it the way I really want to do it. Sure. So in that way, there wasn't a lot of I don't know, it was sort of a kind of nice way to be negotiating a story because I didn't like need to impress my editors getting a big story. I just I just wanted to. Did the fact that you felt like you didn't have much to lose professionally impact the way you reported and wrote the story? I don't think that necessarily, but I do think the fact that I have been writing fiction and narrative fiction and really drilling down, I think, in television in particular and TV writing, drilling into character and character motivation. And like, these are things that, you you know, you never know watching your secession, but like there's pages and pages of work that you do to excavate these characters' inner demons, right? I mean, I had an 80-page Bible explaining all of these characters' backstories and what drives them. So I do think that my brain was probably a little less wired towards traditional journalism and more wired towards understanding character and like a fascinating character who, by the way, could be something out of fiction, right? So I do think in that way, and my editors were like, I even kind of encouraging me to write parts of the stories like a screenplay, particularly the parts of the story where like the law was closing in on her and she and Billy like hit the road in an RV, like just like writing that in a cinematic way was something they I was very grateful they encouraged me to do. So I think I approached the story differently, not because I had nothing to lose, but because I've been thinking about narrative and character. Right, your brain's just wired in a slightly different way. It's like a different, a little bit of a different way. Yeah, I think so. What can you tell me about the negotiations with your editors at the Times when you guys were thinking about the story? Like, what were the concerns on their side around newsworthiness, treatment? What did those conversations look like? 
you know, of course, early on, like initially like, ooh, that sounds like a juicy story. And then it's like, wait, why is this newsworthy? What are we going to add to the Elizabeth Holmes narrative, you know? And so we wanted to be really conscious of that. And very early on, and I love my editor on the business desk who who ha- I've worked with since I was 22 and I was a, a news assistant at the Wall Street Journal. So she knows me like, like, she's like my surrogate mom, right? So she knows me so well and she knows what I love to do. And she was like very much encouraged me to put myself in the story and to just be very honest in my kind of wrestling with this new person and sort of, you know, you think about things like the journalist and the murderer, but like kind of really get into the story in a first person way and kind of wrestle with truth and facts. And and then there was the element that we thought was newsworthy was just like, what's her life like before going to prison? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the things I... I would have been the wrong journalist to do and I don't think we wanted to do was like, we don't want to like litigate the charges that you've been accused of or convicted of. You know, we didn't want to litigate the case. I didn't really want it. There was like a whole back and forth of like, did the box ever work? And here's proof why the box worked and why it didn't work. And I'm like, I don't, I, that's just not, I was not into the, like the granular detail of what went down at Theranos. I was much more interested in like her as a character. So it was a conversation about newsworthiness, but a short one. I wouldn't say short. I would say pretty, like pretty in depth and thoughtful. And I think there was a conclusion pretty early on that if we can like not give her just like a bully pulpit for arguing her case and you can write it in this way where you're openly wrestling with whether we should believe anything that she's saying, then it's newsworthy. If that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, <laughs> I, I think there is an argument that simply hearing from her after seven years, given the incredible amount of content that has been generated from her story in and of itself is newsworthy. But it's interesting to hear the the kind of texture of that conversation with your editor at the time. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think one of the most sort of fascinating figures at the center of a notorious case of corporate fraud, like finally speaking, is worthy. I just think it's like a difficult proposition given that part of her fraud was perpetrated by kind of swooning articles in magazines that turned out to be not true, right? So I think that was the concern going in and how to make sure that we don't fall into any of those traps. But also like just capture the like fascination of like who she and what does she like? That's why I said to them early on, I was like, I just want to like spend an average week with you. Like just do whatever you do without, without a journalist. So like people have commented on how weird it is that we went to the zoo. I was like, that was their idea. I said, where do you take the kids? You know, they were like, let's go to the zoo. So all of those things were sort of on their, you know, they decided. And, um, and to me, that was also newsworthy. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs 
threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I did it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. When you're thinking about those sort of uh, journalistic questions, the newsworthiness combined with the sort of like, as you described, sort of juiciness of the story, were you also thinking about what the reaction was going to be? I try not to allow myself to think too much about the reaction while I'm writing, frankly, anything. When I was writing my book, I had a sticky note that said, what would you write if you weren't afraid? Like, I don't think the best work can come from a place of I'm worried about what Twitter is going to say about I just feel like fundamentally you're not going to pour your heart onto the page, whatever medium it is, if you're worried about the blowback. All which is to say I tried to block that out, though I have written about prominent women enough to know that she would be a huge lightning rod. And yes, I completely knew that people, (laughs) I, I knew that this would be a real provocative piece. I knew that there would be people who said that I was too kind to her, but I did not let that impact my writing too much. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> what do you mean, maybe I should have? <laughs> well, it's not great to get beat up online, but no, I, uh, I, um, I didn't. Well, what was it like for you in this particular <laughs> case to get beat up online? Because you sure did. I did, I did. The weirdly... Maybe it's because I live in Los Angeles and like people aren't like as rabidly on Twitter here. And I haven't really been on Twitter in years since I was a, you know, a journalist. But I I was texting from friends. I was like, did Twitter get worse? Like they're like, yes, where have you been? But so it's weirdly, weirdly didn't bother me the way it used to bother me because I found it so like, um, you know, a lot of the things going around were like 
screenshots of paragraphs taken out of context and like things were just so like wildly clearly not rooted in reading the article and thoughtful criticism that in a way it didn't really bother me that much. But maybe that's because I live in LA and we just have our heads in the clouds. I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't pleasant. I would have loved for everybody on Twitter to say, like to have loved the story, of course. But at the same time, I kind of was like, I think if there's thoughtful criticism coming from a place of like, I read that article, this is where she should have been harder on her. This is what she did wrong. Sure. But a lot of it was not that. It was just like, how dare you profile this monster? Why don't you do Charles Manson next? So when you used to be at the top of the maw on Twitter, if you used to um, get that kind of heat there, what was different then that made it harder than now? Like, is it just being in L.A.? Was the criticism more thoughtful then or did you just care more? I mean, I think I was younger. I wasn't a mom yet. I like cared a lot what like strangers on social media said. I don't know. I just don't like, I don't care as much now. And I also thought I haven't been on Twitter since the whole check mark thing was happening, but I was like, I can't even, I used to be able to like filter it and tell who the like prominent critics you should listen to were and who all the noisy. And now I just couldn't even tell. It was just like a swarm of, of like mob vitriol. And I just shut the app and deleted it off my phone and like went to the farmer's market. Like, <laughs> so I don't know. I feel like it's a good question. Cause I did used to bother me more. I also think when I was covering politics, I covered 2016 and like at that time, Twitter still sort of like drove the news cycle. I felt like a lot of times Twitter would even be our assignment editor. Like everyone's talking about this thing. You've got to go talk about it. And yeah, I don't I don't have a beat now. So I don't I'm not as worried about that. Can I ask you some things about the criticism that I heard? By the way, can I just say to you that Liz did not like the story and they thought it was a total hit job. So there you go. They didn't like it? Oh, they thought it was a total snarky hit job. Yeah. So what did she there. say? Uh, this is also through the grapevine, but I know that they were not happy with it. So it's just it's it's just one of those things. It's like the subject thought it was a hit job. Twitter thought it was a puff piece. I don't know, guys. Maybe I'll just write my heart, and the world can just decide. What <laughs> so. did that make you think about? What she expected this article to be. I am, by the way, I am paraphrasing because I did not, to be clear, I did not hear from Sheer Billy. I did not hear from them. But through the same grapevine in which I got the interview, I heard the like, oh my God, this story is so snarky and mean and like you're calling her a fraud and all these things. I'm like, she has been convicted of fraud. So it's not <laughs> just me calling her that. But um, yeah, so I don't know. It's just the same. It's the same way when I'd write about, you know, Hillary Clinton, people would think it was a puff piece and then her team would hate it. And it's just one of those things. Well, the thing that feels slightly different in this case is that the charge of the criticism was mm -hmm. that you and the Times were allowing her to quote unquote rehab her image. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like if she interpreted it as a hit job, then on some level that was the goal and it didn't achieve it. I think a lot of times people agree to interviews with some kind of expectation and often end up regretful when that does not manifest. Like, I don't think that's a specific thing to her, but it is funny to me 
this was a rebrand. I'm like, a rebrand for what? She's going to prison. Like, I think a rebrand is like if she got out of prison and she's trying to raise money again or she's trying to like start a new company. But like, is she rebranding for her like license plate making startup? <laughs> and, I mean, she's going to prison and she was going to prison when we interviewed. So that's the one thing I saw on Twitter was like her rebrand. I'm like, eh, yeah. <laughs> I hear you that oftentimes people are disappointed after they talk to a journalist. That seems like a very standard thing. But this one feels different to me, only in that the term seems so much starker to me than it normally is. It's like, here's someone who, again, has had more like content made about them than almost anyone in the last 10 years. Like, right up there, right? Top yeah. three? Yeah, yeah. And hasn't said a word. She has to be doing this on some level because she wants to get a different story out. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think if you asked her, that's not a rebrand. That's just like no one has asked me. Like no one has talked to me about any of this. No one has talked to me about how I feel about this. No one has explained like who I really am. And I'm not saying I know who she really is because who knows. But I think it was... Yeah, if the whole world has been talking about you for seven years and you finally have a chance to say what you want to say, I think there's a lot of expectations on that type of story that, you know, those are impossible expectations of like what one story can accomplish. Like her narrative is pretty solidified. People already, as you saw on Twitter, know what they know about her and the case. And so, yeah, I mean, I did I did try to be more um, thoughtful, especially as it pertained to the sexual assault parts of her story. But um, I think she's probably going to figure out that it's not so easy to just all of a sudden tell your side after all of this. And by the way, after creating a totally different character that defrauded investors for hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, it also strikes me that, you know, your job here was both pretty fun and interesting, but also not so easy because the like terms of engagement seem so much starker than they normally are in the situation. Like I feel like there's always this dance between a journalist and a subject that the subject has something they're trying to put forward. The journalist is trying to find what is true. Those things don't often line up, mm -hmm. but it's rare that that dance is actually what the story is about. That's usually something that's on the margins that the totally. reader doesn't engage with. And in this case, I just want to read something and then I have a follow-up question for Yikes. you. Yikes, okay. <laughs> this is a quote from the article here. Okay. I was admittedly swept up in Liz as an authentic and sympathetic person. She's gentle and charismatic in a quiet way. My editor laughed at me when I shared these impressions, telling me, and I quote, Amy Chozik, you got rolled. <laughs> Which felt to me like something I had never read in an article before. <laughs> My question for you is, um, do you think you got rolled? Okay. I knew, by the way, to speak to speak to your earlier question, I knew that admitting my own kind of negotiating whether this is the real person and is this person telling me the truth, like putting my vulnerability in the story opens me up to widespread mockery and criticism. Like I knew that. But I also felt like it was a more honest approach to the reader. And I also am hoping, and people who knew her and got kind of played by her when she was at Theranos have told me this, is that I wanted to explain to people what it's like to be around her, right? So my editor, like the rest of that conversation was basically like, Amy, 
George Shultz ended the Cold War and he believed everything she said. Like, like <laughs> Rupert Murdoch gave her $120 million after meeting her for like 10 minutes. Like, no offense, Amy, but they are smarter than you. And they all <laughs> bought into her. And I was like, fuck, you're right. Like, I don't need my editor to tell me like not to believe Elizabeth Holmes. Like, I, I live in the world. But it was like, I wanted to explain what it's like to be around her because she... Is, when you say around her, like just for clarification purposes, when yeah. you say around her, are you saying yeah. conned? Not necessarily. I think I I want to explain to people what it feels like to be around someone who you know you shouldn't believe, but you can't help believing them because this is what their personality is like when you're with them, right? So like I have a producer friend here who knows her very well. They Back in the day when she was CEO, we're talking about doing a project together, and he was like, do you think she's the Messiah? <laughs> like, like, she, like, obviously she's not. But because he knows this aura and like he's a, this person's around beautiful women all the time. He's like, it's not like her looks. It's there's something about her kind of charm and her aura where you're like, because I would do this thing where I'd like go to their house for like hours and hours and hours and talk to her and be like, yeah, this, this and this. And I believe her. And then I get in the car and I was listening to my dropout podcast or I was like re-listening to Bad Blood on Audible. And I was like, no, no. Why did I just believe? <laughs> she? Why did I just believe everything? So like, it's like that. I knew that I would be like made fun of, but I also felt like it was kind of like an honest way to approach the story and also hope hopefully revealing like this is what it's like when you're with this person, you know, and you're kind of swept up in it. Totally. I mean, I, I think the reason I bring up like Cond is because that's kind of how I read it was like, how do you write about a con woman when she is trying to con you? But it's interesting that where your head goes is like the producer wondering if maybe she's the messiah because i feel like you know <laughs> over the course of human history right con man and messiah that's not a, like a linear spectrum it's a okay, circle maybe, like they maybe. they kind of touch each other you know what i mean messiah, maybe messiah is not i mean he did use the word messiah but the other word i hear a lot is a is a cult leader like what is it about this person that makes everyone get in line right and like do things they'd never normally do like there is a certain personality type, which by the way, I had never met before I met her. I've never met someone like that before. And so I understood on a deeper level why all these men had been taken by her, all of these illustrious investors, the Murdochs and the Waltons and Betsy DeVos's family. And these are huge billionaire investors who are very smart and spending time with her. I kind of understood why they would give a 19 year old or 20 something all of this money and that's what i was hoping to communicate with readers put you in the room with her so that's a no on if you got rolled did i get rolled yeah i probably got rolled <laughs> i did i get rolled it's so hard because i was sitting there thinking that this person I'm meeting seems authentic. And I got shit for that quote, but like that is what I was thinking as I was watching her nurse her babies and play on the beach. And like, she just seemed like an authentic person. And then as soon as I left, I would remember that the turtleneck, deep voice, red lipstick person like also seemed authentic. So how can you believe that this person you're meeting is real if she is telling you that she created a character at Theranos, right? So like my head was thinking, is this another character? Got it. 
Like, I don't think I got rolled in that, like, as soon as I left the house, they're like, ha ha, she's gone and I'm back to being this person. Like, I don't necessarily think that. You left the house and her voice just did go back to weird Theranos voice. (laughs) The voice went back. She pulled in a turtle back. No, I don't think I got rolled in that way. I think she is a chameleon, a chameleon who can adjust brilliantly to the situation, right? And I think this is the person now. But I do, I, in the back of my head, I know she's a chameleon who can change given, depending on the circumstances. Is there anything you do differently in the story or how it was presented? Mm, I mean, I hate to say like, no, because of course any story could be better uh, if you have more time. I think, I think the first couple paragraphs were very much just walking to the zoo with her. I mean, I do mention in the lead that she's been convicted in one of the most notorious cases of corporate fraud in history. But I think I could have, I think those first few paragraphs might have set the wrong tone for how kind we're being to her, right? Because it was just like going to the zoo. I mean, I have, I think it was a little too nuanced in the lead. I said we stood, we were by hissing anaconda as she was telling me that she's innocent, right? So like there were, I think I could have been less nuanced in those first couple paragraphs because sometimes people just like look at a beautiful photo, read the first couple paragraphs and they're like, she just went to the zoo and wrote a blowjob. So I maybe those, maybe I could have like set the tone a little bit higher up. How much control do you have over the photos? Um, they had an amazing, they sent an amazing photographer. Um, I kind of helped them get the photos they needed, but I wasn't there for the photo shoot. But they were like, I thought it was important to have photos that, that showed what she looks like now. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a leading question because part of my interpretation of the reaction to it was a lot about the photos, which are, they're like quite beautiful kind of glamorous photos. Yes, they are. They are very beautiful. And I think they were trying to look kind of somber in it. I mean, they were uncomfortable with the idea of of a photographer. And I definitely think it was important to the piece. But certainly you do look like like at a beautiful photo. And maybe you read the trip to the zoo in the first paragraph and you're like, whoa, what is this? You know, (laughs) so yeah, but I don't think I would have changed. I wouldn't have said no to original photos even if it made the piece feel a little softer than it is, because I think seeing her and it's funny because whenever I write about women, I'm always sort of loath to explain like hair and voice and makeup and things that are like, but with her, you like really, really have to, because that was so much part of the character of Theranos. So I'm just like, just photos of her and like not in a black turtleneck, you know? Yeah. Can I ask you a writing question? Yeah. There's a move that you make a couple of times in the piece that rereading it just before we talked, I noticed in a way that I hadn't when I first read it, which was there are multiple short parentheticals, often with questions in them. Almost all of them hit at the exact ambiguity that the piece is around. Like um, early on, there's like you're describing all the ways that, you know, the media sort of like metabolize the story. And uh, it says somewhere along the way, Miss Holmes says the person, parentheses, whoever that is, got lost. And then there's another one that's like, I tried to ask Miss Holmes this directly. How do I believe you when you've been convicted of, parentheses, basically lying? You're introducing this doubt throughout it in these little parentheticals. Was that like uh, intentional in a way of trying to get at that idea? I looked back at a couple of other you know, articles of yours, like it doesn't yeah. seem like that's a thing that you do super <laughs> often, you know, just like basically 
a little bit, <laughs> if you can really tell. You know, like it was like a, it was a funny way to hedge, and I wonder where that came from. Oh yeah, I mean it's funny because some of those I felt like were like notes to my like unhinged question mark were like <laughs> notes to my editor like would unhinged be a better word you know but instead it ended up like just staying in the story like, <laughs> so like no I mean at the top whoever that is I think that that was just kind of as I was writing I was like she said that we lost who she was then I'm like wait who is she? Like, I don't, I don't know. So part of it was me. Part of it admittedly was a couple things where I'm like, should we use unhinged instead? Question mark. And then they just like ended up in the story, which I, I appreciated because I don't know, like, isn't there one where it's like unhinged question mark? I think that one was just like a note for my editor, whether we should use unhinged instead of, hold on, I'm finding it instead of misguided or something like that. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's right here. It's this steadfast, parentheses, or unhinged belief that has kept Miss Holmes fighting, even though a guilty plea would have likely helped her chances of remaining free. I love my editors so much because I'm pretty sure I put that in as like, a, would unhinged be better here? And then they like were like, no, I think we're just going to run it just like that. That's an incredible <laughs> editing move. But doesn't that yes. feel kind of far afield from normal times style? It does. I was very lucky. Before I left the Times, I was writing almost exclusively for Sunday Business, and we had a little magazine thing going on. Like, I did have a lot more freedom to use my voice to, you know, to make my snarky asides. Like, those kind of 6,000-word Sunday features, you do have a little bit more freedom. At least I, I did when I was when I was on staff, and then I have the same editors on this piece. Um, and then... Rachel Dry, who edits Sunday Business, used to be the Sunday Review editor, and we did a lot of pieces together. And they were always that sort of like inserting your own voice and your own kind of almost like opinion. Not, I would want to say opinion like a op-ed, but it is you're definitely being honest about your perspective in a way that like a straight news story wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, this whole story is just your perspective. This whole piece is just you wrestling with whether there is a single truth about this person, and if so, it can be found. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of wrestling. That's There was, <laughs> there was a lot of wrestling. So I, much I, wrestling, we didn't even get to Lizzie. I know, I know, yeah, I know. And I'm very grateful that I had the, you know, the runway to be able to, to wrestle openly with that um, because it was the only way I could kind of get my hands around the story. Does it feel controversial to you, this article? I think it feels provocative. I think it does. And I think especially when there is a narrative that has been so ingrained, anytime a story wants to, and I don't think this is trying to change the narrative, the reporting on Theranos is incredible and, and solid. And so this is not trying to change the narrative of what happened to Theranos, but it is a little bit challenging the narrative of who she is. And I think anytime you do that, it's going to be kind of provocative and make people talk. I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I was glad to hear people were debating it over brunch. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) How much do you think the fact that this piece was printed in the New York Times font is connected to its reaction on the internet? I guess explain, because people have feelings about the Times or because it gives it a certain weight both. I mean, I think what I'm asking is it felt to me like there was a strain of this that was kind of like, how could the Times publish this 
when there are so many other things to be covering. That feels kind of specific to a relationship to the times to me, if that makes sense. Yes. Well, I can't really speak to that. I think sometimes when people say that, it's like, you know, people used to say that to me, like, how can you write about this when Hillary just unveiled a new economic plan? I'm like, I wrote 4,000 words on her economic plan. You didn't read it. So sometimes <laughs> I think some of the reaction of like, how can you cover her when there's all of these other things? Look, it is absolutely awful what this criminal justice system does to incarcerated mothers. Of course, you know, a prominent founder like Elizabeth Holmes should not get more attention than the kind of issue writ large. But the Times has covered a lot of issues around criminal justice and mothers. I've done reporting on Rikers. I've interviewed inmates. Like I, So I don't know. Sometimes I think when people say, how come you're not covering that? They are. They Those just aren't the stories that are getting tweeted and talked about necessarily, the kind of policy stories and um, I don't think it's an either or. I don't think it's like, well, we covered Elizabeth Holmes, so we can't write about this, you know, other issue. But certainly very proud that it was published in The New York Times. I think it gives it a, a weight that other places don't have. All right. I'm going to let you go in a second. It's very generous of you to uh, answer all these questions. I have a few more. And one question is, was this fun? That's a really good question. And actually, it was fun. Like it was because I haven't been doing journalism for a little while. I have to say it was like a it was a lot of fun to be able to talk to a real person who's been in the news so much to kind of dig into that story. It's um I think stressful in a way that I hadn't that I sort of like forgot. You know, <laughs> uh, you know these are people's lives. There were real victims of her fraud, but uh, it was fun. I was kind of like, oh, it's nice to like write nonfiction again. Um, and it, yeah, it was. Did it seem fun? Yeah. It seemed to me like you were having fun in the story. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, you deleted the app from your phone and went to the farmer's market. That also seems like more fun. But it did make me wonder about what your relationship is to journalism now. Like you've been show running and writing for TV for three years. Yeah. To dip back in in this way with this like huge spotlight on this wild story. It did make me wonder whether like you miss it. It made me wonder why you left. It made me wonder about your relationship to journalism now that you're a, you know, Hollywood bigwig. Oh, well, I don't know about that. I'm a, I'm on strike in Hollywood. Uh, but I, uh, I, you know what? I, um, my HBO Max show is about journalism. So I have been sort of like steeped in journalism, even as I've been a showrunner. And it's been wonderful because it has been, I think there are obviously some really hard parts about being a journalist right now and some really a lot of vitriol and we're writing a dramedy so it's been it's like it makes journalism seem fun you know I think the show does and I and, I, and so I've always been over the past few years you know a consumer of news and a lover of journalism so and I did sort of I did miss it but I I mean, it's a long story, Max. I don't know if you want the whole story, but I had always wanted to be a creative. I had like a, you know, I studied poetry and an MFA program. I moved to New York to be a writer and then I couldn't support myself. So I started as a temp and then I ended up getting like after many terrible magazine jobs, I was the foreign news assistant at the Wall Street Journal. And it was right after Danny Pearl was kidnapped and 9-11. And it was just a fascinating time. I like fell in love with journalists and newsrooms. And 
Anyway, 20 years later, I was like, I was at the Times, I'd covered politics, I'd been a foreign correspondent in Japan, I'd done a bunch of different things. And I wrote my book. And I when I went to write my book, David Carr, who had been my mentor at the Times said, you have to go to a magical place where writers live, you have to get like newspaper writing out of your head. And I had um, just so much fun having the freedom to write in my own voice. And then when I adapted that book for into this show, I just felt like my soul had come alive, like writing. I, I always had like a very <laughs> overactive imagination. I had like imaginary friends, you know, when I was little. And then now I just feel like I get to play with my imaginary friends. Not now because we're on strike, but <laughs> during normal times. And also a lot of the things and issues that were important to me to put into the world as a journalist, you can put into the world through your fictional characters, I think in a really compelling way, right? It's like TV can, in the best case scenario, be a tr sort of Trojan horse where you don't even realize that like secession is is, is a very smart commentary <laughs> on right-wing media, but it's all framed in the kind of kids searching for daddy's love. So I think television is a gift in that way. And that a lot of the issues that I liked to tackle in journalism, you can tackle through your kind of fictional characters. That's a long-winded way of saying it. But I did love doing the story and I missed, and I loved like Zooming with my editors in the newsroom and I got like nostalgia for being in the newsroom, which yeah. everyone says it's not even like I remember it because not as many people are coming in. But yeah, I mean, like we, you know, we built a whole fictional newsroom. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been, I felt like I've been in journalism, even though I've been in my fake journalism world. Right, it's journalism except you just get to uh, decide what happens. <laughs> Yes, you get to decide. But I feel like that's a little bit what your experience was like doing this piece, too. You get to pop in and do one. I mean, the thing you were saying before about like not having this be your entire livelihood, but instead be something where the sort of journalistic stakes are just as high, but the personal stakes are lower. Something about that seems really appealing to me. Yeah, it was it was a gift. It was a really fun way to kind of dip back into journalism. For me, the stakes were very high because I just felt like, you know, I, and whatever you think about Elizabeth Holmes, and that's something we haven't really talked about, is like, I was very sad reporting this story. And I know it's I've said it's fun and I and I'm proud of the piece. But like, no matter what you think about her, it's like really sad to see someone who's about to go away for 11 years with two babies. And no matter what the controversy of when she had her babies or what, like that was sad. Um, I think it's also really sad and this isn't sort of reflected in the piece, but like the fact that she chose a healthcare startup and the fact that our healthcare system is basically fucking squid games and you have to like sell your house to buy grandpa kidney I and mean, it's horrible. She was offering people hope, you know, hope that you could get a tiny finger prick and have more information about your health. You know, the, the way she said it, that we never have to say goodbye to our loved ones too soon. And I was just sort of sad because I feel like so many of the people and promises that we just so desperately want to believe in end up to be so disappointing. And I think with Elizabeth Holmes, had she chosen like a food delivery service or if she was like renting, she was Adam Newman renting co-working space, we'd kind of probably have moved on by now. But I think healthcare is just like, I don't know. I just got, there was a sadness to the article as well. I think, not to the article, but to the reporting process, there was a sadness because I just, for one, I feel bad for any mother who's in prison when they have uh, children. And then also just kind of this idea, I was like looking at her and thinking like, you made these big promises about something like so visceral to people, our healthcare, and they turned out to be 
wrong. And then I was just like, sorry, not to end on a down note, but no, no, no. I mean, but to your point about stakes, like I did feel pretty big stakes in terms of like how we buy into these people and promises and they let us down, you know, so spectacularly. But that's also like what I found to be by far the most revealing and scariest part of the article was at the end when she not only is saying, you know, if I just hadn't done so much PR, we would have figured it out, but also is like, I could still do it. Mm-hmm. Like, because her fraud was in healthcare, where people are so desperate for answers, mm-hmm. I totally agree that it's really different than a food delivery service. But that's also what made it so effective. And I found it personally totally creepy that that was the one thing she was saying hadn't changed. I know. I know. I feel like that, too. And I feel like that is the section of the story. And I even told them that in the, like, sort of editing, factoring process. I was like, you realize this sounds crazy. Like, like when she was telling me how she plans to continue to think about healthcare inventions behind bars, you know, and it's like, they were like, yeah, we know, like, we know to outsiders that this sounds crazy, but this is who I am. Like, so to me, that was the part of the story where I had unhinged question mark, you know, like, because that is the part of the story that I almost think speaks to her sort of mental state more than anything else in the piece. Like the fact that she still is saying this, like this is someone who was banned from a laboratory for two years. And so it's, it's just, I think I really uh, clung on to this quote that Billy often says about her, that she's much more of a zealot than a showman. And it's that zealousness. And it's why this, producer thought she was the messiah it's why people say she's a cult leader it's this zealous belief even when it is completely detached from reality and that's partly why i said she has the same kind of idealistic you know dreams of a 19 year old never mind that she's a 39 year old about to go to prison for fraud like that doesn't compute like she's still talking about like oh if i had been in a lab during covid i had all these ideas for covid testing like I know everyone thinks this is crazy. I've told her this is sounds crazy. And this is something that she is just steadfast in her conviction about. So draw the c- conclusions you will about that. I will draw conclusions about that, yeah. which is that <laughs> that was the part of the article that felt, in a way, the most honest. Because why on earth would you say that if you didn't believe it? And if she really believes it, That means all of the Theranos stuff is like every bit as bad as it seemed. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really complicated. I think, you know, when people are like, why hasn't she apologized? Why didn't she just plead guilty and get a lighter sentence? Like, and and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't put her on the couch. But from what I saw is that she has a steadfast conviction that if she had had more time, she would have seen through her inventions. You know, I think at Theranos, she used to reference Thomas Edison, who I guess was like, you know, faced a lot of skeptics before he became great. So I think that there is a a hard wiring there that is probably not like most people, but maybe is true of inventors that you have to have a little bit of delusion in order to see through your vision. Cult leaders too. Cult leaders too. I just think like some people are like, you know, and it's hard because anytime I say something like, that seems like I'm defending her. It seems like I got rolled. I get it. It's very, very hard. But there are people who are like, she's like Madoff. She's like Charles. And I'm like, 
I don't think so. Like to me, it wasn't about getting rich, but she got rich on something else. She got rich on this currency of like this messianic vernacular of tech, like we're changing the world, we're saving lives. Like I think that was her currency that she sort of craved and got very wealthy on. I don't think it was like I set out to just like get rich off this thing. I think she was a child. She was 19. <laughs> and I think that uh, it got out of control. And I think, uh, you know, not to draw too many conclusions, but I just don't I don't think it's the same thing as a Billy McFarlane. A guy, like these got these like kind of salesmen who come out and like do this thing to get incredibly rich. I think it would have been something simpler than healthcare if it had been just about that. It was also about getting rich off this sort of like genius saving the world kind of currency, if that makes sense. Yeah. And being celebrated for it. I'm not saying there wasn't like a greed or an ego or like a horrible side to it. I just don't necessarily think it was like a, I want a yacht and a PJ. I think it's like, I want to be on stage with presidents telling me I'm changing the world at 19, you know? Did she listen to the podcasts and watch the TV shows? So she says she did not watch the uh, Hulu show, which, by the way, I thought was fantastic. Incredible performance. Yeah, it was so and it was so well done. And it really did get at her nuances. It did talk about the rape at, at Stanford and some of the more complicated aspects to her story. She says she didn't watch, but when I told her how comedic it is, um, she was really, she feels like this story is a tragedy, not a comedy, right? But like there is so much comedy and it's part of why it's it's been pop culture catnip, right? The voice and the green juices and the turtlenecks and the dancing to Lil Wayne and the like baby Yoda sayings all over the office. Like there's a comedy to this, to her story that I think has given it legs in pop culture. And I think from her perspective, it's sort of all tragedy, if that makes sense. Did you like hanging out with her? Yeah, you would like hanging out with her and Billy too. They're very personable. Like, I'm going to say this, I'm going to get all this shit. I got rolled or whatever. But like, if I'm just explaining to you what it's like to hang out with them, they were very personable and you would like hanging out with them too. And to be clear, I wasn't like, ooh, let's be best friends or anything. But like in terms of, spending a lot of time with people, they were pleasant. Well, for what it's worth, hanging out with you has also been really nice. Oh, good. And afterwards, when we hang up, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm going to have no second thoughts. This is great. Thanks for doing it. Thank you so much. It's great to, great to do it. And, and this is my real voice. So. <laughs> Mine too. Mine too. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gabriella Saldivia edited this episode. Thanks to her. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox, with whom we make the show. And thanks so much to Amy Chozik for coming on and talking to me about Elizabeth Holmes. We'll see you next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free 
Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. <laughs> 